Isaiah chapter 42. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Um, I know it takes a while to get through anything, doesn't it? Because I just go on these rabbit trails. But there's so much richness in these few verses, and I hope to bring it out. The more I think about it, the more I meditate on it, the more I see these wonderful things that bring peace to my soul. And I'm hoping that that will translate, and I'm able to bring that to you. Uh, So with that, let's start at verse number 5 of Isaiah chapter 42. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will give you, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In the context, as we have talked about, Isaiah is doing this polemic against idols. Um, And we spoke about this a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 41, speaking of the idols as Moses and Paul both testified that idols uh, were demonic spirits. But Isaiah is saying they were all created by God. They don't have it in their hand to do good or evil. They pretend as if they have this power and they keep people in fear and keep them in bondage. But there is no power. You try to capture their power by carving things out of gold and out of silver and out of wood. Uh, and it can't bring about anything, bring about any good or it could bring any about any evil. And he's speaking to Israel in the context of seeing in the future when Israel is in exile in Babylon and how great the temptation is going to be to bow down to the idols. Because in, in that day, if a one nation conquered another nation, the belief was that the nation that conquered had a stronger God than the nation that was conquered. Um, and so the thinking would be, this is the temptation, since Babylon conquered Israel, then the Babylonian god Marduk is stronger than Israel's god Jehovah. And so that would be the temptation. We see some of this as we read through the book of Kings, uh, where you know, one king his name escapes me, goes up to Damascus. He sees the uh, the altar in Damascus, and he really wants to worship that God because look at how much good he did for Damascus. Um, and so this polemic is throughout. God is the, the true God. Jehovah, the God of Israel, is not just a local God. He's not just the power over this little scrap of land in the Middle East. He is the one only true God who created all things in heaven and in earth. He created the spirits. He created the spiritual realm. He stands in power over the powers of the universe. And Isaiah has gone through all of this and brought all of this out. And then there's a comfort to Israel because what good does it do to worship the only one true God if you have no assurance that this God is going to bless you, is going to accept you, and is going to be at peace with you? 
And so here is all that comfort. Yes, Israel has sinned, but God is going to be their God. He will never leave them. He will never forsake them. He will also gather together the Gentiles, and he will be their God, and there will be one fold and one shepherd. And he's going through all of this stuff. Uh, And then he gets to chapter 42, and here is the first of this mysterious figure called the servant, which we looked at last week. As I said, in chapter 41, the servant is identified with Israel and Jacob. Uh, This is the nation of Israel, the servant. But here, in this passage, this is being narrowed down to one person. Last week, as I said, the elect one in whom my soul delights, I identified this with Christ, uh, because uh, Christ himself identified with this, and uh, the, the apostles all pointed to Christ as the fulfillment of this. Now we have God himself speaking to this servant. This is the you. The cap, uh, our text, the New King James, capitalizes that you. Of course, that's uh, all those capitalizations are editorial. Uh, sometimes they're an error, sometimes they're not. It's an interpretation. In the original Hebrew, this wouldn't be capitalized. But it is masculine singular, uh, which is it's not a collective you, it's one you. Uh, which by itself doesn't necessarily mean it's talking about one individual. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's pointed to Christ. It still could grammatically be speaking of the nation of Israel. However, nowhere does God say that he gives Israel as a covenant to the people. This is something being called in righteousness, this is something that can only apply to Messiah. And so Isaiah, in his brilliant writing, uh, of course, it's under inspiration, but God also worked with the, the gifts that he gave Isaiah. In this brilliant writing, he's keeping us on edge, and he's narrowing the servant down from the nation of Israel to one representative who takes upon himself the form of the servant. And then, as I said last week, unites himself to his people so that what happens to the representative happens to the people. What happens to the head happens to the body. And so the first thing we see in chapter 5, this new creation that God is promising, this new heavens and the new earth that there's echoes of throughout the book of Isaiah, it ends with this glorious figure of the resurrection from the dead and the new, figure, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. It's Isaiah's language that talks about the lion lying down with the lamb and beating the swords into plowshares and all of this beautiful stuff of this new creation that's coming in. It's done by the exact same power that created the heavens and the earth to begin with. That's so beautiful. He created the heavens and stretched them out. I was actually having a conversation with my uh, grandson uh, the other day. On uh, he, he informed me, he's 12, he informed me that the Big Bang Theory was foolish. I agreed with him to a certain extent. I said, uh, yes, of course, we know that, that all of matter didn't, wasn't just always there. Uh, that's not how the world was created. We know that God created everything. However, the idea that the universe is expanding and began at a central point and then was sent out, that actually fits biblical language and very well could have been what happened, that God created everything and then stretched it out, which is why the physicists, the astrophysicists, are discovering that the universe is expanding. 
I'm not a physicist, so I'm not going to get together with a science, but I, I, I don't believe there's contradictions between science and what the scripture tells us. Um, I, the stretching out of the heavens is a biblical figure. It's God in his hands and his fingers that stretched everything out and put it all exactly where it belongs. This also answers the question as to why, uh, if the universe is relatively young, we see stars that are billions of light years away. How can that be unless the universe is billions of years old? Well, God created light first, and then he stretched out the heavens. Um, God can do as he pleases. This is the doctrine of creation. And rather than getting into old earth, younger, six days, the focus in scripture is that God in his eternal power created the heavens and stretched it out. It didn't happen by chance. It didn't happen by accident. And here's the beautiful thing about that. Those sins and those struggles and those anxieties and those fears that God has promised to renew in you aren't going to come from your power either. They're going to come from his almighty hand. The same power that created you. See, look at this. He gives breath to the people on it. He, he's the one that breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. He's the one that gave us our soul. And so if he is going to promise that he is going to give us new life by breathing his Holy Spirit into us, he can certainly do that. That's not beyond the possibility of God. It's exactly what God does. And so the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, using that figure uh, that God breathed into man's nostrils, the breath of life in Genesis 2, and then Christ breathing on his apostles and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. That's that beautiful picture of God's new creation. And here's the beautiful thing to hold on to. Where were you when God laid the foundations of the earth? And does God need you to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. So we wait, we're patient, and with that in mind, we can let go our fears and our angers and our helplessness and our rage and simply love our neighbor as ourself and leave it in the hands of God who is perfectly capable of dealing with Israel and Babylon, with dealing with Cyrus, the king of the Persians, with dealing with our government today. He's perfectly capable of dealing with that. Our job is to bear witness to the truth, not to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. God is dealing with that part. Remember, in my sermons, as I've been going through Luke, if you're listening to those sermons, when I identified the gospel with the proclamation of the king and his conquering of death, it's the proclamation of the kingdom of God. That's what the gospel is. It is not, by the way, if you work up enough guilt over your sin, uh, you might possibly be forgiven. That isn't it. The gospel is the king has conquered. It's an event that took place outside of ourselves. And therefore we have hope. That's verse 5. Verse 6. Now he's addressing the spirit. This, or he's addressing this servant. This God, the creator of all of heavens and earth, who created the heavens and stretched them all out, this God calls one his servant in righteousness. And this is something that would have woken, woken, woken up the 
the minds of the sleepy Israelites in Babylon because they knew exactly why they were sent into exile. They weren't righteous. And by not righteous, I'm not talking about, you know, they, they had a bad hair day. I'm talking about real sins. They were oppressive. They, they uh, abused the widow. They, uh, they crushed one another. They lived in idolatry. They turned their back on the Lord over and over again. They continually rejected God until finally they get to the point where King Manasseh is offering his children as a sacrifice on the, on the wall of the city. This is the stuff. This righteousness and justice are frequently the same word, tzadak in, in Hebrew. Uh, so this is this injustice, this horrible state of affairs in Israel, where the judges and the princes and the prophets and the priests were all becoming richer and richer and richer by crushing and oppressing the weak. They're sent into righteousness, they're sent into exile for that reason. Not only that, but... Go back to Adam and Eve. Why are Adam and Eve sent out of the presence of the Lord? Lack of righteousness. They disobeyed the God's word. Nothing unclean can stand before God. Now, think about this. Take a moment and examine your heart. Because in our modern day, the idea that God is just and judges sin is, is contrary to how we think. We have to have a tolerant judge. But I want you to think back in your life of those things that you have done, those things that you tend to say, those dark places where your mind goes when you're weak, foolish, in the middle of the night, all of those things. Do you really want to spend all eternity with God still carrying that around? Or isn't the fact that God is righteous a beautiful promise that all of this will actually be cleansed from us so that we don't, our thoughts can be completely open and bare to God without shame? Isn't that what we long for? This is the promise when God says, Nothing unclean will stand in my sight. He calls his servant in righteousness. And that's good news for us who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Okay, so how is the servant going to bring this about, this, uh, this righteousness? I will hold your hand. Uh, in English, God holding hands or someone holding hands, uh, this has, uh, brings about the concept of love. Uh, romance, you know, walking hand in hand. It's a beautiful thing. I love that. There are plenty of examples in Scripture of God embracing as a lover his church. That isn't what's being said here. Uh, the word is strengthen. I will strengthen your hand. And the hand is symbolic for power. The uh, When you talk about what a man does with his hand, you're talking about the man's power, the whole thing. Uh, right hand is the strong power. When God says, I will strengthen your hand, I will hold your hand, this means that this servant coming in righteousness is upheld by the power of God himself who created the heavens and the earth. Of course, this mystery is going to be resolved when we see Christ, who is true God and true man, in the unity of person. That's an important thing to keep in mind for the next phrase. I will give you as a covenant to the people. And this is something that bears some thinking. A covenant, and the thinking of an Israelite, we're, we're created covenantal. 
by that, I mean that we are all created to live in society together. We have neighbors, we have friends, we go shopping, we go driving. Let's just take a simple covenant. A simple covenant is that when we're in a car and we're driving, we're going to obey the basic rules of the road. If we didn't have this basic thinking, we wouldn't be able to leave our house. Uh, because as people get less covenantal in their thinking, the roads get more dangerous. Uh, that's one of the things you start seeing. If I am walking uh, down the aisle in the grocery store looking for a, a carton of milk, uh, and I see someone else going for a carton of milk, and instead of uh, waiting for them to get it, I punch them in the face, I'm a covenant breaker because I have not behaved according to the rules of how people get together. All of those rules are ingrained in us. We live this way. This is the basic rules of how we get along with each other. The Hebrew word for this is covenant, berit. There are those who are chesed, that's translated normally loving kindness. That means someone who is loyal to the covenant, basic kindness, basic generosity, basic loyalty. Then there is bagad, which is generally translated treacherous. Malachi chapter 2. Treacherous is someone who doesn't care about covenants. He beats his wife. He breaks his rules. He breaks the law. He breaks his word. Uh, he just doesn't care. He'll say that the thing will be done in four days. It's not done for a year, and he just doesn't care. Um, you, he won't respond to your emails. He won't respond to your texts. He just does what he pleases and could care less how his actions are affecting other people. The scripture calls that treacherous. Don't worry, I'm getting here for, I'm, I'm going somewhere with all of this. So follow me along. Basically what's happened in the last 400 years of Reformed theology is we've gotten the concept of covenant so convoluted and complicated that most people have no idea what they're talking about or what theologians are talking about. I'm trying to simplify it. A covenant is a basic agreement on how we're going to get along. The more serious this agreement is, the more the covenant needs to be in writing. So, for instance, if I'm going to loan you $100,000, I'm going to make sure that our agreement is in writing so that there's no understandings between me and you. If I'm going to give you a dollar to go buy a candy bar, I might not write a whole contract for that. Uh, but if I expect that if you say, hey, I'll pay you back tomorrow, you'll pay me back tomorrow. Um, either way, this is all involved in the word covenant. All of Scripture is God's covenant with his people. The Westminster Confession says God has given us his covenant. The covenant is how, as the Westminster puts it, God has revealed himself to us. It's his, this is how you're going to get along with God. This is who God is. This is how you're going to get along. You want the blessings. The blessings that come from God are life, love, intimacy, fellowship, communion, peace, shalom, wholeness, health. All of those things are the blessings that come from God. Those are the things that we want and that we desire. The basic covenant is obey me and you'll live. Disobey me and you'll die. God cannot think otherwise than that. If he was not like that, he would not be God. This is not an option with him. When Adam sinned, the natural consequence of that sin was broken fellowship with God. The natural consequence of broken fellowship with God is death. Just like the natural consequence of turning off the light switch is darkness. 
it flows naturally, as well as the punitive aspect, but I'm not focusing on that right now. Okay. Adam, of course, broke that covenant. And ever since then, every human being that's come along is a covenant breaker. We are born alienated from God. The basic rules of behavior between man and God are not there. Because we have a remnant of the image of God in us, we still behave the basic rules. Otherwise, we would not be able to have a society at all. So we still follow the rules of man to man, and thank God for that. Uh, that there are still some basic human decency. And you can basically count on the fact that you can go to the mall unmolested. Uh, some are more dangerous than others, and so forth. One perfect example of what I'm saying is when Laban and Jacob uh, separated from each other, they knew that if they stayed together any longer, they'd kill each other. Um, they, they had that. Um, Jacob couldn't stand Laban. Laban couldn't stand Jacob. And so when they got to Syria, they put a monument. They put a stone there. And they said, okay, here's how we're going to get along with each other. You're not going to come this way, and I'm not going to go that way. I'm going to go over here, and you're going to go over there. And the scripture calls that a covenant. Okay, so here we know. God has made a covenant over and over again in scripture. Israel is thrown out of the land, and they're in Babylon because they broke the covenant. Jeremiah 31 uh, this covenant you broke. I was a husband to you and you broke my covenant. So I will make a new covenant with you. But the new covenant is not, here's a new way to get along with God. The new covenant is a person. The servant. I will give him as a covenant to the people. One of the other words that the scripture uses for this is a mediator. Mediator is sometimes confusing to us because we talk about mediators like you've got two different parties that are in disagreement with each other. A mediator goes to one party and gets their point of view, then goes to the other party and gets their point of view, and works back and forth until he brings reconciliation between these two parties. If that's what it means when we say Jesus is a mediator, then Jesus isn't God and Jesus isn't man. He's somehow a go-between between the two. And that's not the scriptural evidence. The mediator is not something that Jesus does. It's something that Jesus is. He is the mediator. Because in one person, he's both true God and true man. And therefore, in his person, this is the catechism, says, what do you mean, uh, what benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? That he is our mediator. He's the covenant. In other words, he has kept all of the covenant of Adam. He kept the covenant that Israel broke. He kept the covenant that the kings of Israel broke. He went through every one of them. He kept all of it perfectly in his person, in his human nature. He was a righteous man. He was also true God. And so that fellowship was perfect. God and man in one person. The Chalcedonian formula. If you don't know what that is, let me know and I'll send that to you. That's important to study. It's the formula that describes exactly how the two natures of God and man relate to each other in the person of Christ. There's only one person. If there were two persons, we wouldn't have a mediator. 
But because there's one person who is true God and true man without change in either nature, then he is the covenant. It's all been kept. It's all done. It's all complete. It's all finished. In him, we have all the blessings of the covenant. Eternal life, light, health, peace, joy, everything that we long for in God. And of course, then we have the question, well, what about all the misery and all the suffering on this earth? Yeah, God's teaching us patience. God has his plan for all of this. He's going to sort it all out. We're going to stand before him and it's all going to be perfect and everything is going to be clear. We're going to understand exactly what he's doing as he's drawing us to himself, as he's drawing us to himself, because his goal is so that we can stand before him and not be terrified and not hide in the bushes anymore and not try to cover ourselves, our nakedness from God, but stand before him and from one another without shame, without fear, because he's called the servant in righteousness and made him a covenant for the people. Next phrase, a light to the Gentiles. We without Christ, the world without Christ, one of the biggest questions is, what are we doing here? What's the purpose of any of this? What? Nobody's going to remember us. Uh... 1975, um, Elton John played a concert in Dodger Stadium and the whole world was talking about him. Uh, you talk about kids today, you talk to kids today, they probably don't even know who he is. I know that in 10, 15, 20 years, no one will even remember him except for old, old time music people. They're going to forget somebody like that who can fill up a stadium of 80,000 people in one night. They're not going to remember me. They're not going to remember you. What are we doing here? What's the purpose? Don't we long for something bigger and better than what we have? Were we made to be thrown into a mass grave and forgotten after six months? This is the darkness that we walk in, trying to find something to grab a hold of. What? What's the purpose? The other thing about blindness, and this isn't a discussion about disability. This is using a language of Blindness is a, a, a moral blindness, a, a blindness of knowledge, a blindness of wisdom, a blindness of not knowing where you're going. It's being in a cave that's completely dark and you're trying to grope your way through. Isaiah uses that figure. We grope for the wall as blind men. We don't know which way is left or right or up or down. We're trying to find our way through this world and making a mess of it most of the time. But what happens when you're in that kind of darkness is you turn in within yourself. Because you can't have any contact with anything outside of you. You don't see other people for who they are. You don't see God for who he is. All you're doing is turning in on yourself. And there's Martin Luther's beautiful phrase about sin, which turns us in on ourself. So we can't look out of ourselves and see anything beautiful or anything that has meaning or purpose or wisdom. When the light comes on, the first thing that we see is there's a reality outside of ourself. And the story that we're in is not ours. It's God's. And that's beautiful and right and perfect because we're part of something so much bigger than we thought. 
This is the light to the Gentiles. The light that's turned on, it involves everything else. Yeah, it involves our works, our wisdom, our knowledge, our knowledge of Christ, our knowledge of God, our knowledge of ourselves, our knowledge of our neighbor, the image-bearing nature of who these people are that we're walking around with every day. Verse 7, the purpose of the servant to open the eyes that we can see this, to bring the prisoners out of prison. A prison in the ancient world, they didn't have a prison system like we do today. A prison in the ancient world was a place where you held prisoners while you were finding out what to do with them. Uh, most of the time you were holding on to them until their execution time came. Uh, you'd throw them into prison while the king was making his decision or they would be doing their decree. Uh, it's an idea of uh, the death that entered into the world. The scripture talks about it as being in this prison, waiting to die. You're just waiting to be executed. So I want you to think about this, and if you've read what I've written on this before, oh, thanks, I'm, I'm not going to be so flattered as I think you remember everything I wrote, so I'm going to repeat this again, which is what I do. Um, imagine you're in prison, and you are scheduled to die. The very next day, you're going to be taken to the uh, gallows, and the rope's going to be put around your neck, the trap door is going to be sprung. You can hear them working next door building that gallows. The judge is a hanging judge. He knows what you did. You know what you did. It's been proven beyond a doubt. Every appeal has been worn out. You've got the petition to the governor, but that's been worn out. The governor's already said, no, hang him. He knows what he did. You're not worthy of living and you know it. And the next day you're going to be executed. What is going to bring peace to your soul? You can have somebody come and say, all right, well, the governor pardoned you. Well, maybe. Maybe the governor would pardon you and that would be a relief, but you still have the knowledge of what you did. And there's still that law hanging over you. And you're still guilty. The teaching of Scripture is more than pardon. It's more than just release from punishment. The idea is this. You have been taken from the cell. You've been taken to the gallows. You've climbed up the steps. You've got the rope put around your neck. The trap door has been sprung. You died. You were carried outside and buried in the ground. Now what does the law have over you anymore? Nothing. And so imagine the prosecutor coming back into the judge the next day and saying, now let me tell you something else about that Sam guy. What happens? The prosecutor's thrown out of the courtroom because the penalty's already been paid. This is why Satan, the accuser, has been cast out of heaven. The penalty has already been paid. You were taken by the mediator of the new covenant. You were taken by the one who is a covenant. You were taken to the cross and nailed there. And so now you're actually released from prison. Paul puts it like this, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ in me. That's the doctrine of Scripture. And so when the guilt is overwhelming our soul, the doctrine of Scripture is, yes, that's already been put to death. Do you remember in Colossians chapter 2 when Paul talks about the handwriting that was against us? 
God takes it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The referral there, what he's referring to there is the custom of Rome to put the charges that a man was found guilty of on the cross. So if a man is a insurrectionist or a murderer, they would say he's an insurrectionist or a murderer. They'd nail it to the cross and they'd take him out and put him to death. Um, Pilate couldn't think of anything to put on the Jesus cross, so he did, in order to insult the Jews, the king of the Jews. You remember the Jews then said, no, no, say instead that he said he was the king of the Jews, which would make him guilty of insurrection, but Pilate knew that wasn't true. And so he said, ah, what I've written, I've written, and left it there, because he didn't have anything to put there, and he knew it. But God had a lot to put there. He put every single sin that you and I have committed, every thought, every shame, every uh, everything that keeps us awake at night, all that ugliness and all of that filth, and he's nailed it to that cross, buried it in the ground. And the day will come when it'll be so completely taken away that we can finally stand free, at peace, pure before God because of the covenant that is Jesus Christ to bring the prisoner out of prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And then in verse 8, and this I'll wrap up, verse 8, I am the Lord. I am Jehovah. This is the name that he gave to uh, Moses, and he revealed himself to Moses throughout the book of Exodus to all of Israel by this name, Jehovah, the creator of heaven and earth who enters into covenant with his people, and he delivers them. He opens the Red Sea. He uh, brings manna from heaven, water from the rock. He leads them all the way into the promised land just as he promised he would do. This is the Jehovah. And now he compares this to idols. Who else is going to do this for you? Marduk? Is he going to give you new life? Is he going to take my glory, my glory that's the church, and he's going to turn it into something glorious and beautiful? Look what Marduk does. Yeah, he's, he's inspired a lot of beautiful hanging gardens. Now take a closer look and see all the prisoners impaled on spikes around the city of Babylon. Look at Rome. Yeah, a lot of beautiful buildings, a lot of great culture. Now look at all the crosses. Who's going to bring life? My glory I will not give to another. My praise I will not give to uh, carved images. And to prove that, he says, the former things have come to pass. I told you what would happen, and it happened. And now I tell you what's going to happen and it's going to happen. With that, we can rest our souls. Let's come before him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this covenant, for our Lord Jesus Christ. How beautiful that is, and how we long for that day when we can stand before you in perfection, clean and washed and uh, welcome and beautiful because our Savior is beautiful. And until that day, we lift up our eyes knowing that you see us how you are making us completely washed and clean. And we remember that beautiful passage saying, and such were some of you. Yes, we were, and we still struggle with sin. We still fight against the flesh and anxieties and fears. That's the old man, Father. Teach us to bury it, to put it to death on the cross, and walk in newness of life.